Good morning, my friends. How are you this morning? That's good. It's good to be here. We're going to be studying, as you heard Bob Crump read this morning, we're going to be studying from John chapter 13. So if you'd like to go ahead and just open to John 13, verse 1. That's where we're going to start. Before I jump into 13, though, in the sermon, what I would like to do is establish a broad timeline of what was happening in John so that we can see where John 13 fits in the timeline of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, in John 1 through 11, John covers three years of Jesus' ministry. So three years of Jesus' ministry have gone by. Already they've gone through two Passovers because there's a Passover every year, okay? And then in John 12, John, the author, brings us to six days before that year's Passover celebration. So six days now before the Passover celebration, John 12. And this was the Passover when Jesus would be crucified. So in John 13, we have the Last Supper. Now, in the Last Supper, we have the start of what is a private conversation. The crowds are, are not anywhere to be seen in John 13. In fact, if you read from John 13 into 14, 15, and 16, all of those chapters are on that night a private conversation with the disciples. There was a lot that Jesus had to say to the disciples on that night before he was crucified the next day. So just get the idea here that John is packing a lot of information from one night into a, several different chapters here. So we've got four, 13, 14, 15, and 16, four chapters, all in one night. Jesus had a lot to tell them because he was going to die the next day. And then in John chapter 17 is, is referred to as the high priestly prayer where Jesus looks up to heaven and prays to God the Father. John chapter 17. And in that prayer, it's still a private setting. I'm pretty sure, based on the context, that the disciples get to overhear that prayer. John wrote about it. He wrote John 17. He's basically revealing to us what Jesus said to God the Father in that prayer. So it was a private prayer between Jesus and God the Father, God the Son and God the Father. But the disciples get to overhear, which means we got to overhear as well. So this entire conversation in all five of these chapters, we get to overhear. And they get to help us and inform us, and they get to do certain things to us and have an impact on us. And the more we've studied through John 13 in our Adult Bible Fellowship, we've studied several passages with a theme of investing in one another. This was one of them. John 13 was one of them. This, this passage has grown very dear to my heart, and, and I really feel like it's worth sharing with everyone here at Maranatha. Now in verse, or chapter 18, Jesus was going across the Kidron Brook into the garden, which they visited quite a bit according to Scripture. And that's where Jesus was arrested, John 18. So there's no more private conversation in John 18. Jesus does talk, but not privately to the disciples at this point. Halfway through John 19, Jesus is crucified. 
There's a lot of discussion going on between all of the religious leaders and Pilate and Jesus. and Lots of things going on there where Jesus is being abused. So halfway through John 19, Jesus was crucified. In John chapter 20, we come to the first day of the week where Jesus resurrected. The first person we meet there is Mary Magdalene. She gets to be the first one. Figure out what's going on here with the resurrection. A shock, a surprise to them. And then John chapter 21, Jesus revealed his resurrected self to the disciples over and over. And that's the end of John. So John has 21 chapters. So what we're in is a section that's a private conversation that's packed into five separate chapters. Four of them is to the disciples, one private conversation. John 17 is with Jesus to God the Father, all packed in all of these chapters. Okay, so there was a lot going on here. So in this timeline, what I'm going to do is is start with the beginning of that private conversation. So let's get back to John 13 now. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. I'm going to stop right there make some comments, and then we're going to move on. So this Judas Iscariot was, there were two Judases in the disciples, and this was Judas Iscariot, so we want to make sure that we get those Judases correct. Now, in writing this event, the writer John wants us, the readers, to understand that the crucifixion was part of God's plan. He wants us to know that Jesus was in control. You can see that here in these first four verses. Jesus was in control. Jesus wasn't surprised, and he wasn't afraid. In verse 1, we learn that Jesus had knowledge of the future. It said when Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then it talked about what that meant. Jesus then acted on that knowledge. The knowledge refers to his death on the cross, at which point... He would be going back to the Father, according to verse 1. He's going to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. That knowledge refers to his death. So in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand indicates to us that he was in control, in spite, despite of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Now let's read on. Verse 4b, on to 8. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Wow. In that culture, let's talk about foot washing for a moment in that culture. In that culture, foot washing was relegated to servants and inferiors. That was the culture. We have to understand that going into this passage. Since there was no servant here this night, the disciples would have been more than willing to wash Jesus' feet. That's okay but they would not have been willing to wash each other's feet because that would have been a signal of inferiority. 
And we know from reading through the Gospels that was an issue for the disciples. For a master to wash the feet of a servant was completely unthinkable because it implied something to them. It implied inferiority, which I've already mentioned, and it also implied failure. You see the problem here? Going into a foot washing, Jesus the master now is washing the feet of his servants. And what does that imply about his being a master? It implies failure in that culture. It's not just washing feet. It implies something of significance. So here we have Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Israel, stooping to wash the feet of his disciples. And, and I just can imagine the shock and, and disapproval and dismay of all the disciples. It's like, what is he doing? This is not good, what he is doing in their minds. That's why we see in verse 6 that this was just too much to bear for Peter. So in verse 6, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? <laughs> he was... I think we, we hear shock in this. We can infer some shock in this, in this question. And in verse 7, Jesus explained that Peter did not understand the significance of what, was, what Jesus was doing, but that he would understand later. And then, of course, Peter said, well, you shall never wash my feet. I, I like to read it like, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, he was energetic about this. No, you are not going to wash my feet. No. That was Peter protecting the Lord from failure. Do you see that? It was Peter protecting the Lord from failure in his mind. That's the way Peter was thinking. Of course, it was typical of Peter and his bold character, wasn't it? But as was often the case, Peter was probably just verbalizing what the other disciples were already thinking. They just didn't act like Peter about it. The disciples had no knowledge at that point that foot washing was symbolic of the Messiah sacrificing himself for them on the cross. No knowledge at all. But the symbolism was a perfect choice by Jesus because the idea of a Messiah on a Roman cross, which was reserved for non-Romans, that was extremely offensive, more offensive than the foot washing bit. It was offensive. A, the way it was put by Paul, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. There's no way Messiah is going to die on a cross, especially a Roman cross. No way. Messiah was supposed to take over the world, but going to a Roman cross was not taking over the world. You see, their plan, their idea was the kingdom is coming, and it's coming tomorrow. <laughs> and Jesus was preparing them for something a little bit different than what their expectations had set up. And Jesus said, if, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's like saying, I'm going to be a stranger with you, Peter. We're strangers. We don't even know each other if I don't wash you. In his commentary, Robert Mounts said Peter was unwittingly typifying those who believe that they can clean themselves. And I don't think Peter understood that, to give credit to Peter. Aligning the symbolism of foot washing to crucifixion, Jesus is saying, if you, if you don't let me sacrifice myself for you, then you have no share with me. And of course, Peter didn't understand, but it mattered to the Lord because when it comes to symbolism in the Scripture, it matters to God. We find that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to be careful to accurately keep the patterns of liturgy in worship that God designed. And of course, there were stiff penalties when they were broken. Some were even to death. It was a serious matter. To Jesus, this pattern was important. In verse 8, 
He said, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So that pattern was important. Now let's read verse 9 and on. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are clean. So Peter enthusiastically reversed course. The problem, of course, was that that wasn't really the solution to the problem. Peter still had no idea, no idea of what Jesus was symbolizing at this point. Second, Peter had unwittingly gone from stopping his master from serving him to telling his master to serve him more. And in either case, Jesus was here commanding the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was commanding God to do something. And there's something wrong with this picture, isn't there? And Peter didn't understand that. I'm, I'm frankly amazed. At this point, I am amazed and encouraged by the restraint of the Lord to show Peter such patience and love. Because I, I think he restrains, the Lord restrains himself in love for us too when, when our Peters come out. When, when we are Peter and we are being just like him, when our attitudes are like we're going to judge the Lord, we're going to give command to the Lord, and when Peter shows up in our life, then what happens? The Lord is patient with us, and I'm glad for that. Now, how should we interpret Jesus' answer in verse 10? Simon Peter said to him, verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my feet. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. How are we to interpret that? One commentary points out, that has bathed is, re is Jesus referring to the coming initial justification, not to san incremental sanctification of the believer. And the reason why we can conclude that, or we, we think that's a good idea, is because Jesus is careful to point out that one of them, Judas Iscariot, was not clean and not bathed, which means he was not a believer, nor would he be justified. And note that John was careful to emphasize in verses 10b and 11 that Jesus was aware of the impending betrayal of Judas Iscariot. 10b. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you, referring to Judas Iscariot. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So from that information, John is reinforcing to us, the reader, that Jesus is sovereign and in control. Now let's move on to, to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. First, let's tackle the question. 
did the Lord command foot washing as an ordinance? And if he did, why don't we do it? Okay, why isn't an, an ordinance here, for example, at Maranatha? It's significant that the command in verse 15 was that foot washing was meant to be an example. Jesus said in verse 15, For I have given you an example that you should do just as, of, as I have done to you. So we prefer to understand that Jesus wants us to take the meaning behind foot washing and use it as an example to form proper attitudes toward one another. I'm going to read that again. We prefer to understand that Jesus wants us to take the meaning behind foot washing and use it as an example to form proper attitudes toward one another. The example should not be limited to washing another person's feet, but to all areas of life. Now, assuming that my approach is correct, we have to answer the question, what is the attitude that Jesus is commanding then? Early on, the disciples jostled for power, as I mentioned earlier, in the coming of the kingdom of God. In Luke 22, 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They were arguing who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first concern of the disciples was to establish a superior rank in the coming kingdom of God, which was going to start tomorrow in their minds. Okay? But Jesus taught that this is not how one gets ahead in the kingdom of God. To advance in the kingdom, Jesus wanted the disciples to learn to excel at loving others. Since foot washing and crucifixion are the contexts of this passage, the character that love takes on is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice for the good of others. This is what Jesus demonstrated on the cross. It's a new kind of self-sacrificial love. Now, if you look down, and we didn't read this, uh, Bob didn't read this in the initial scripture reading, but I want you to look down in chapter 13 to verses 34 and 35. Jesus taught a new kind of command of love based on his example here. 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, how is that new? How is that new? Because they already commanded, the, the, the Trinity already commanded this in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he added these words, just as I have loved you. Oh, that way. That's how you want us to love. You also are to love one another. So the part of the verse that defined the newness of the command, in my opinion, is to love as I have loved you. The point is that Jesus had just demonstrated to them a shocking willingness to wash their feet, which we know symbolizes a shocking willingness to go to the Roman cross as the Messiah. This kind of love is willing to self-sacrifice for another all the way to death. This was a new kind of love for the disciples. And according to verse 35, I should read that for you, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, this was a new kind of love that should make the world notice Christianity. And I believe that God planned all along to use the self-sacrificial love all the way to death paradigm in the church, for one another as a witness to the world.
That's what I believe he is teaching here. And he's taught in, in, in more than this passage, but he, he teaches it here. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I'm just going to read this. Matthew 11:29 said, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then Jesus says, for I am gentle. This is God speaking. And lowly in heart. God said this. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And he was giving us an idea of what self-sacrificial love looks like when God models it for us. Now back in John 13, in verse 16, which says this, Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He commanded them to be like him, gentle and lowly of heart, all the way to willing to die for each other, reminding them that they are not greater than him, the Messiah. Then he adds the blessing of verse 17 to those who practice this kind of love. And when you, when you see the word blessed in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when you see the word blessed, the way I like to think of it is God approved. So you can substitute the words God approved in for blessed and get the context, get the idea, the feeling for what's being said here. If you know these things, God approved are you if you do them, is what Jesus was saying there. Now let's move on to verse 18. We're in chapter 13 again. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before, he takes before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Here Jesus establishes his sovereignty by prophesying that Judas Iscariot would betray him in verse 18a. I'm not speaking of all of you, he said. And then again, he establishes his sovereignty by referring to the act of choosing those that will believe him in 18b. He said, I know whom I have chosen. Okay? High priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, as I explained back in the beginning, in verse 12, Jesus says this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the scripture that was fulfilled, we believe, points back to Psalm 41.9, a Davidic psalm that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you now in advance. And the reason I'm telling you now in advance so that when the betrayal occurs, you will believe that I am the Messiah, I am not a fake, and I am not a failure. I am God, and I am going to be alive. Now in verse 20, this was for me a, an unexpected verse in the context, but Jesus put it here, so I'm going to include it and consider it and teach it this morning. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This uh, is Jesus talking about a future mission, I believe, that he will authorize. In verse 16, he hints about the idea of missions already, because we saw that he said, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. But here he becomes more explicit about the idea of a mission for the first time in this private conversation. To me, there's hope embedded here. There's hope embedded in this comment because it's the authoritative living Jesus that will send them out with a message. The message and the messaging network, which will be the disciples, are not going to fail or cease to exist because they will be powered by the living Messiah. Now, let's transition the sermon here into making some observations based on what we've just studied. That's as far as I'm going to study in this passage this morning. I have a question here that I ask myself and I'm going to ask you and then I'm going to answer, hopefully. How does the Messiah best prepare his disciples for his unexpected death on the cross? He said in verse 1 of John chapter 13, I love them to the end. So here I want to answer this question. How does the Messiah best prepare his disciples? Well, first of all, he starts out with the illustration of foot washing. That's the first thing he does. He helped them learn that he intends to win the battle through self-sacrifice. This is a whole new radical kind of thinking for, for them. The cross, as shocking as it is, was the path to victory in God's way of thinking. While he was illustrating his death on the cross, he was teaching them how to relate to one another in love. So he was doing that as well. He was, he was teaching them. The way to get ahead in the kingdom is through self-sacrificial love patterned on Jesus' love, which is the kind of love that is willing to die for one another. Love like I have loved. So again, how does the Messiah best prepare his disciples for this unexpected death on the cross? Number two, did you notice that John is very careful to tell us how much Jesus knows what's going on with betrayal. They noticed it after. They didn't understand what was going on at the time, but afterward they noticed. What did that do to them? That gave them faith that he was the true Messiah because he predicted that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. He said that he told them in advance, he was prophesying that in advance. This is why he said in verse 11, not all of you are clean. And in verse 19, he said, I am telling you this now so that when it does take place, you believe that I am he, which means you believe that I am Messiah, the king of Israel. You believe that. So I'm telling you all of this in advance to give you faith that I am not a failure. In verses 21 through 30, which we didn't read today, that was the part of the private conversation where Jesus identified Judas Iscariot as the betrayer by handing him a morsel of bread dipped in sauce of some kind. And that was where John said, Lord, who is it? And of course, Jesus handed him that morsel dipped. To hand someone morsel dipped in that time was a, a sign of hospitality and of love. Interesting. And Jesus did it that way. It has that meaning to them. They had no idea at that point that Judas was the one who was going to betray them. So at this point, the straw that broke the camel's back caused Judas Iscariot, by the devil's incitement, to say, I have enough of this. Enough of this being willing to sacrifice all the way to death talk of a master washing feet. Enough of this. 
I'm out of here, I'm leaving, and he left. So that was the last we see of Judas Iscariot in this chapter. Gone. Of course, they didn't understand what he was doing, but Jesus was being God. He was being sovereign. He was in control. He wasn't surprised by any of these events. And finally, I see a third thing here that Jesus did in preparation for the disciples. And he predicted that the disciples would be sent out with his authority. That's what I see in 1320. Jesus is going to build his kingdom. I'm not a failure. I'm going to win. The kingdom will be built. And he's going to do it by sending out his disciples who will win as well. The kingdom will continue to be built this way. The network of messengers will succeed because it's going to receive authority from the living Christ. So what do we take home? I've just got a few thoughts here for you. There, there are many other thoughts than what I've composed here, but these are some of the things that I see that really, really come home to, to me to take home. We are reminded of the new kind of love that the Savior introduced and modeled in life and death. This had a huge impact on me personally. Jesus wants the church to practice that kind of love in the assembly today. Uh, because of this passage, I have to say, off script here, I have asked the Lord more often to please teach me how to love because I need your help how to love. And I think that that's a common theme that we all can pray about. We can ask the Lord to empower us to love one another. I want to be able to love you like this all the way to death. I don't want to die. None of us want to die like this. But I would like to know that I love you that much. And I would like to know that you love me that much. It's commanded by the Lord. It's something that clearly he can grace us to do and he does grace us to do. So Lord, please help this to be a reality with me and with my brothers and sisters at Maranatha Baptist Church. And as we heard in verse 35, I, I read that in chapter 13, God intends to use our love for one another as a witness to the world. And I, I wonder how effective our testimony is when it comes to our loving one another is to the world. And can we do better? And I think we can, there's always room for improvement. But now that is something that's on our minds to be thinking about. It matters for God's glory how we love one another because the world is watching. Number two, here's another take-home point for me. We are reminded that Jesus was who he said he was, not a failed or fake Messiah. He was God the Son. Have you ever just stopped and, and just had your doubts and wondered, am I putting my faith in the right thing? Have you ever done that? You don't have to acknowledge it to me. Just think in your own minds, have you ever done that? And I have to say to you, I've done that. Is Jesus really who he said he was? Is Jesus alive? All of those kinds of questions. Well, this particular passage really helps have an impact on the answer to that question. We take comfort in knowing that he was in control. He was not surprised by his betrayal or death on the cross. He knew the future, the betrayal, the cross. He knew the resurrection was coming. He knew about his ascension to God the Father. And in the high priestly prayer, in verse 5, he said, I know I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to receive the glory that I had before the, that I had before the foundations of the world. 17.5. I'm going to have that. And at the end of that prayer, I just love this. At the end of that prayer, he said, Lord, I want them, speaking of us, 
to be with him so that we can see his glory. Jesus is excited to show us his glory. Now, I'm excited to see his glory because Jesus is excited to show me his glory. I want to see that glory and experience that glory. And that's going to be a component of our eternal life. Not just existence, but our life in God's radiance, in his glory. I'm interested in that existence, and I'm looking forward to that. So I find this passage faith-building. I think it was recorded for our benefit for that purpose, because Jesus revealed that this was the purpose of the conversation. Again, 1319, I am telling you this now so that you will believe that I am the Messiah. I am telling you this in advance. Do these words from Jesus have a strong positive impact on the ancient Christians, on the early believers? I think it did. Uh, a historian named Tertullian, ancient historian, wrote that the pagans said of the early Christians, see how they love one another, and added how ready they are to die for one another. And this really had an impact on the pagan world, according to Robert Mounce's commentary. He said, yes, this, this had an impact. So evidence shows that they love one another as Jesus commanded, and it had an impact on the world for the better. That was regarding love. Now, regarding faith, the prophetic teaching of Jesus before his death was a testimony to the believers that bolstered their faith. History shows that they were willing to die for the cause of Christ after his ascension to heaven. They were being genuine in their faith because they had confidence in the cause of Christ and frankly, I believe them. I believe them. They were not lying. They were not making this up. They were living it because it was going to cost them. But they knew that the Lord Jesus was going to win in spite of impending death, of persecution. So they were believers, and I believe them. So I believe that God wants us to understand us to understand that we should let the examples and teaching of Jesus from these passages, starting in John 13, impact us toward radical love and radical faith, just like they did for the early believers. I'm going to close with part of what he said in this private conversation because I think Jesus wants us to hear it. It's John 14, 27 through 29. Jesus said this, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Our Father in heaven, I believe you. My Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you. I believe the testimony that you gave in your scriptures, and I believe that John was telling us the truth, and I believe that they were dying for reality. Lord, I ask that you would help this passage to bolster our faith, but also let it inform the quality of the love that we're supposed to have for one another, Lord. Love Love covers a lot of sins. You said in your scripture, love should make us patient and kind, 
And Lord, what you're saying here is that love should give us such an affection for our believing brothers that we are willing to die for them. Lord, that, that is a tall order. You commanded it. I believe that's what you meant in John 13, 35. I believe in 34 and 35. I believe that's what you meant. And I ask that you would, Lord, help us with our love here. And Lord, for those who are maybe wavering in faith, please help them look back at these verses and know that you, you, are, you are God and you do not fail in your way though they be shocking and different than what we have in our humanly expectations. Your ways are very good. And Lord, that you will win this battle. Lord, I ask that you would please strengthen us in both of those areas today. I ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be an effective outreach in our mission, in our ministry to the world. Lord, we need your power for this. We know that you are the living Christ who has given us authority to do that. Please grace us, Lord, in your power. In Jesus' name, amen.